0: Good morning and everyone's very welcome to our service of worship today. Uh, those who are watching online are really welcome and joining us uh, in worship uh, this morning. And special welcome uh, to my brother, Stephen and, and Ruth, uh, his wife, uh, Ruth, in her medical training, spent six months in Newton Ards and survived. Uh, and then there their six children uh, really welcome here this morning uh, w- with us today. It's been a great joy for Session uh, to meet uh, earlier on and to welcome into the membership of Newton Ard's congregation Andrew and Catherine uh, McKenzie and it's a great delight for us uh, to have a new family joining us here in, in Newton Ard's. Uh, Andrew works in the civil service, a uh, ranger supporter, <coughs> uh, drives a golf GTI, <coughs> uh, Catherine, a classroom assistant, Scottish, uh, likes Aaron brew, <coughs> But God has worked in their lives and changed them by his grace. And in his providence, he's brought them to join with us here in our congregation. Already they've been helping in our Sabbath school and in other ways uh, within our church. And we are delighted today to have them as new members here in Newtonards. Later on in our service, uh, their two children, James and and Ellie, uh, will be baptized in our congregation. service this evening will be at 6.30. It's preceded by a time of prayer at 6 o'clock. Our ladies' Bible study is on Tuesday morning in the church hall. On Wednesday evening, our prayer meeting and Bible study will be at 7.30. On Thursday at 12.30, Nosh and Natter will be starting, and everyone's welcome to that or bring along uh, some some neighbour. Next Sabbath day, uh, the service is at the usual times of 10 o'clock for the Sabbath school and then a prayer time, uh, 11 o'clock for morning worship and 6 30 for evening worship. After the morning service, uh, the young adults are welcome to come along uh, to, to the manse uh, for, for lunch. On Friday evening, there's a CY event uh, in Lisburn and uh, young people are welcome uh, to attend there. At our midweeks on uh, Wednesday evening, uh, we're beginning a study of a, a new book, uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. Uh, this book looks at 10 disciplines within the Christian life, and I really encourage you uh, to be involved uh, in this journey for a congregation at this time. Uh, this book, the study of this book will, will transform your life. Uh, you can do this book by reading it at home, Uh, But far better to come along on a Wednesday evening and study together with us. Uh, So this week it will be an introduction uh, to the 10 disciplines uh, and then we'll look at the 10 disciplines in turn uh, and work our way through this tremendous book. You have to take your car for an MOT uh, every year uh, to have it well checked out. Uh, Well consider this book a a spiritual MOT uh, to consider the disciplines within your Christian life which help you running smoothly and will strengthen you in your progress and maturity as a Christian. So I thoroughly recommend not only the book, but meeting together on a Wednesday night to pray and to study the contents of this book. We begin our worship by praising God from Psalm 53 uh, singing the whole of this psalm, uh, the tune is number 208. Uh, psalm 53, uh, the whole of this psalm. A psalm which is quoted in the book of Romans in chapter 3, as we'll see, God willing, in our studies. A psalm which describes us as fallen, as going astray, and, and, and including every one of us. see the language of verse number 3. Not one is doing any good, no, not a single one. So what hope do we have before the holy God whom we worship this morning? The hope is identified in the last verse. Let Israel's help arise from Zion. How specific this is. Only God in the heavenly Zion can provide the help, the Savior whom we need. And in his glorious grace, he has done that in sending his Son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 53 We remain seated as we sing the the whole of this psalm to tune 208. Shall we stand as we come to God in prayer? Let us pray. O Lord God of heaven, we draw near before you and praise your name. We come, Lord, to you, the living God, the God who has no beginning and who has no end, the governor of all the nations, the Lord of all the angels, the king of all the earth. We praise and honor your name. We thank you that your eternal purpose is being worked out in time. We thank you that no one can resist your will. We thank you, Lord God of heaven, that you are sovereign, that you are good, that you are Lord, that you are merciful, gracious, and true. O God in heaven, we have sung of the fools denying your existence, of those robbing you of obedience and worship, praise and honour and glory. But we thank you for your grace to us, for enlightening our minds, for subduing our wills, for leading us to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and a desire to praise and honor you. O Lord in heaven, we thank you that you are reigning, that you are king, that you are Lord of all. And Lord God of heaven, we thank you that this psalm assures us that you grant help from heaven. We thank you that you have so loved the world that you sent your only begotten Son, that he has come, that he has taken our very nature upon himself, that he has lived in this world, that he has died upon the cross in our place instead, that he has risen again and has ascended back into Zion where he reigns and governs and saves his people. Lord, we praise and thank you for your mercy, for that unconditional love, for that unearned love that you've shown towards us. Forgive us, Lord God, for those times that we live as if you didn't exist, for not trusting in you, for not seeking your will, for not praising and thanking you as we ought. Forgive us for our practical atheism, dominant in our life and behavior and mind and heart at times. Forgive us, Lord God, for the many times that we go astray, For those times that we do not do what is right. O God in heaven we acknowledge our failings in sin. In thought and word and in deed. And we come before you today. And we thank you Lord God for your grace. Which is greater than our transgressions and offences. And which brings to us your mercy, forgiveness and love. We thank you for the assertion. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray today that as we draw near and worship before you, conscious of our unworthiness, we will have the assurance of your righteousness imputed to us and of the ensuing peace with you through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grant blessing on all your people as they gather in praise and honour And glory of your name today across the earth. And upon us as we gather here. May we be uplifted and challenged. May we be humbled and changed. As we wait in your presence. For we come in Jesus name. Amen. Our Bible readings then today, uh, the first in Romans and chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. In our church today, we'll be thinking of these two verses which form the theme for the book of Romans, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Let us hear God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, "The righteous shall live by faith." Our Old Testament reading is in Second Kings in chapter seven. Second Kings in chapter seven, page three one three in the Church Bibles. We're reading from verse number 3 to verse number 15 about the the lepers who have good news and they want to share that good news just like Paul in Romans 1 the good news of the gospel and he wants to share that good news. There were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate and they said to one another why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Assyrians to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, When they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fear like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste, and the messengers returned and told the king. Then in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, verses 19 to 26, John four nineteen to 26. Here's Jesus in the region of Samaria, speaking with the, the woman of Samaria, and they're discussing worship within Samaria and within Judea. Jesus asserts that the priority of the Jews' religion, and we'll be thinking of that in our service this morning, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. John 4:19 to 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Shall we again stand as we come to God in prayer? Let us all pray. Father in heaven, we thank you today for the health that you have granted us to be here in your house among your people. Thank you for new members joining us today. Thank you for holidays and rest and refreshment. Thank you for the message of the resurrection of Christ in which we delight and which we proclaim. Thank you, Lord God, for your Son, risen, exalted, seated at your right hand, King and Lord and Saviour, Prophet priest and king. We praise and worship you for his glory and his power and his wisdom and his grace. We pray for the nations, Lord, in their challenges, in their policies, in their priorities, in their values and principles, in their direction. Lord, we pray for grace. We pray for your Spirit's working. We pray for a turning again to you, a humbling of ourselves before you, a repentant heart unto you, O Lord God, and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant us that blessing we ask. Guide our Prime Minister in these days of pressure and scrutiny. We pray that he will be reflective and humble and repentant where he needs to be. We pray that you will be honoured in his responses and answers under this ongoing scrutiny. We pray for his interaction with other nations We pray for the values and laws and direction in which he and his party guide our nation at this time. Uh, We commit this all unto you in praying, Lord God, for a turning again to yourself. We pray for the local elections here and the implications they will have uh, in our land and policies. We pray for your mercy to be shown to us. We pray that those who fear you will be granted positions of authority and power and influence within our nation at this time. We pray for your church, Lord. Thank you that you are building your church. and No schemes of hell can frustrate your purpose. Thank you that your kingdom is coming among peoples and nations. Thank you that your will has been done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, in heaven we pray uh, for those congregations and nations in which your church is restricted and persecuted. We pray for strength for them. We pray especially for congregations in Pakistan in these days of oppression and intimidation. We pray that you will preserve your people and grant them courage in the face of opposition and threat and fear. Thank you for being with our students in the college over their first year and for them passing their exams. We pray for them in the placements of Uh, which they will be soon commencing. We pray that these will be tremendously useful and helpful to them as they prepare for ministry. We pray for the CY event on Friday evening, that you will bless this gathering, uh, that your word brought there will bring benefit and enlightenment uh, to the young people and steer them in your way. Thank you for the young people from this town being able to meet together for the weekend, and we pray blessing on your word brought to them. And we pray, Lord God, that your grace will work in each of their hearts. And we pray, Lord, for our congregation. Thank you for Andrew and Catherine, Lord. Thank you for your grace in their hearts and in their lives. And we pray for them as they join our congregation here, that they will know your blessing and your love and your peace to be upon them. Thank you for Ellie and for James. And we pray for them in their school and in their home, And among their friends, uh, that you will keep them and bless them. And we pray that that they both uh, will be close followers of you and tremendous servants of yours at this time and throughout their life, we pray. We thank you for baptism, Lord. We thank you uh, for this sacrament that you have given to us, which proclaims the gospel of your forgiveness and of your grace Uh, And we pray, Lord, that it will prove a true means of grace to us today uh, as we uh, have this within our congregation. Lord in heaven, we remember those who are unwell and we pray for them. We remember especially Russell's brother and pray for him and his wife in in this time of weakness. Uh, Thank you for the measure of recovery that he has. And we pray that this will continue. And we pray that through all of this, uh, you will work wonderfully and graciously in their hearts. We pray for young people sitting exams, that you will help them in their studies and in the exam itself. Uh, We pray that you will sustain them uh, through this time and that you will guide them into the future as to the the courses they should take and the careers they should pursue. We pray for Nosh and Natter. We pray for the ladies' Bible study. We pray for our midweek gatherings. We pray that your presence and blessing and grace will be with us. As we congregate throughout this week, may you be glorified, may your people be built up, we pray, may your word be brought to those who in this present moment are in darkness, but in your grace will be brought into light. As we stand before you, Lord, we bring our praise to you, our worship, and offer these our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We praise God from Psalm number 54, uh, the tune is number 149, Psalm number 54, tune 149. A a wonderful first line in this psalm as we think today of the gospel, which is the power of God uh, to salvation. What a response uh, this psalm has for us, Oh God, now save me. By your name, a, a humble prayer, a prayer of faith, a prayer of dependence, a prayer of prayer of urgency. See that the word now, O oh God, now save me. By your name, and we look to God. The psalmist goes on with that assurance and answer to his prayer in verse three: God is a helper to me; the Lord sustains my soul. This is what faith is. This. Trust this interpersonal relation with the living, saving God, a helper to me. He sustains my soul. 54, we remain seated as we praise God together. Well, you can maybe turn to the chapter we read in Romans and chapter 1, Romans 1 and verses 16 and 17. This morning we're thinking of the gospel of God. Those of you writing uh, longer essays in sixth year, and sorry to bring up this, uh, this point here, hopefully it won't distract you uh, from the sermon, perhaps at university, uh, you will be familiar with this idea of an abstract uh, that you are required uh, to put at the very beginning uh, of your essay, usually after you've completed uh, your work. And this abstract is a, a short summary of your main argument in your thesis or, or in your essay before you come to the concentrated logic, before you arrive at the many references and footnotes and appendices, you have this abstract, this summary of what your theme is and the conclusions that you hope to argue and defend in your thesis. The key ideas appear in the abstract in summary form. And in the book of Romans, a, a long, a technical, a detailed, a dense book and argument, we are blessed and privileged with an abstract in verses 16 and 17. Here for us is a summary of the main argument, the main themes, the main ideas, which will be unpacked into the future. And we come today eh, to consider this summary. Of the book of Romans. It is the third element of this introductory section that we're considering. We've already thought of the greeting in verse number 1 to 7, Paul introducing himself to those people whom he has not yet met. We thought also of his prayer, his desire to go to the city of Rome in verses 8 to 15. So here he is, down there in Corinth, AD 57. In that lull in his ministry before his focus on the the eastern regions, he's turning now to the western regions, to Rome and to Spain. In this three months, which Acts 20 verse 2 identifies as the likely place where he pens this tremendous, dense and gripping, transforming letter to the Romans. And here in verses 16 and 17 he sets out for us, as was often done in the first century, this abstract of his message. Frank Thielman comments a tightly packed summary of what is to come in the letter. Leon Morris writes these two verses have an importance out of all proportion to their length. And Barrett calls them the text of the epistle. We focused this morning on 16 and this evening on 17. The gospel of God. Let's think first of all of the gospel and our sharing. The gospel and our sharing in verse 15. You notice the logic, the compressed nature of these verses. The word for is repeatedly used. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For, verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For, in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. Here is this incredibly compact press statement, this summary of what is going to come in the book of Romans. And so, in order to understand the first statement in verse 16, we need to grasp his assertion in the previous statement in verse 15. There he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel and our sharing. Paul explains that he is eager to preach the gospel and the reason why he is eager is he is not ashamed of that gospel. He is eager, eager to preach in Rome, that city in the first century of around 400,000 people, 30% slaves, 30% freed women and men, 40% freeborn. He wanted to go to Rome. Ruled by Nero at this time with ability and skill and wisdom before he went mad in his later years. He wanted to go to Rome. He had been in Corinth with its 200,000. He was there probably at this time. He had been to Thessalonica with its 200,000 of a population. But now, For the first time, he wanted, he was eager to go to Rome. The word eager here is the Greek word for down, bent. And it's the idea of the athlete standing at the start line, crouched over, all things pent up, muscles ready, tendons straining, ready to go. Here is Paul in his life, and he's eager, he's itching, longing to go to Rome. And we ask, why? Why does he want to go? Why does he want to go so much? Well, everyone wanted to go to Rome in the first century. It was the place to visit. People felt a sense of deference, a sense of appreciation for for all that Rome had done, it brought peace, civility, prosperity, roads. They wanted to visit Rome. Its architecture was outstanding. The theatres, the palaces, the Colosseum seating 45,000 people was amazing. People wanted to visit Rome. But was it just as a tourist? Paul wanted to go there. Or was there something more? Surely something more was was driving him here. Surely it was his sense of apostleship. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Rome was the capital of the Gentile world. He wanted to fulfill his calling and go to Rome. He wanted spiritual fruit in that city to preach there and see the kingdom come and new hearts of boys and girls and men and women. He wanted to establish a fellowship base from which he could reach out to the western parts of the empire to go to Spain and have that support and prayer and encouragement from a congregation that would speed him on its way. He was eager to share the gospel in Rome. Many people have a bucket list. This desire to fulfill some event, major event in their life. Perhaps it's to travel the world. That was number one on the 101 things to have on your bucket list. Another was to learn a new language. Another was to take a job in a different profession. Another was to to get to your optimum weight, what was was suggested. But here is Paul's. He wants to share the gospel. He wants to go to the city of Rome. What an aspiration for us today. And one of the intriguing things about his assertion in verse 15 is, He says, I want to preach to you. Now, Dutoit says that that you is is quite broad, and and rightly so. It's it's the city of Rome, the people of Rome. But but there is a, a narrow sense as well, isn't it, to you believers. I want to preach the gospel to you believers. For believers need the gospel. Perhaps when you heard about this series of sermons in Romans... You thought boring. We've been in creation and you thought those, those sermons about the hand and the, the woodpecker and the albatross like kept me awake in the pew but sermons from Romans about sin and judgment and forgiveness. But believers need the gospel. And Romans answers so many of the personal problems and questions that we have. That struggle with assurance that raises its head with us unexpectedly and out of the blue, doubting, are we ready to meet God? Romans helps us there that God imputes a righteousness to us apart from works. That trouble you have as you read the news and view our society, this drift away from God and and morality and values. How has it happened? Where has it come from? Romans 1 explains this to us. Man turns his back on God, and God turns his back on man. The gospel and our sharing. Secondly, the gospel. And our shame in verse 16, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel." And we see the connection between confidence in the gospel and sharing the gospel. And Paul makes this connection. I want to share the gospel in Rome, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. I have complete confidence in this gospel. We can be ashamed of the gospel. There's so many elements of the gospel which are offensive to our neighbors. The gospel assures us that we're all sinners. We can't save ourselves The gospel asserts that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. The gospel calls on us to follow a leader who was born in Bethlehem, who grew up in Nazareth, who was crucified. And in John Chrysostom's day, this was a real problem to people. The backdrop to the gospel is the wrath of God against sinners. And all of these elements could make us ashamed of the gospel and silence us. But Paul here is saying, I'm wanting to go to the capital city. I'm eager to go there because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Isn't it odd that he puts it in the negative why does he not say, as he says in other places, Galatians 6, for example, I am proud of the gospel. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Puts it in the negative. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Douglas Moo suggests that this is just a grammatical use of term to give. A difference to to his writing, and it, it basically just means I have great confidence in the gospel. But surely there's more to it. The gospel was considered foolishness by the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. Masses in society despised the gospel, and in that context, Paul says, I am not ashamed. The gospel. Throughout this epistle, we will encounter passages where Paul's preaching is questioned. He's considered anti law in some places. Chapter 3, for example, why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? But despite these accusations, Paul says, My message. My gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel and our shame. Paul stands in direct contrast to Peter, doesn't he? Who on that night denied that he knew Jesus. Peer pressure crowded in him. Fear of his life gripped him. In a moment of weakness, he was ashamed of the gospel. But here is Paul in Corinth wanting to go to Rome against all the opposition, doubt and mockery. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What about you? Out in the park this afternoon, you meet your neighbour and he says to you, Oh, I saw you driving off this morning at 10.45, going anywhere nice. And you reply, Oh, I was just out with my family. And you can't say, I was at church hearing about the gospel. Tomorrow, in the canteen at school, you open up your lunch with the other fifth years. And they immediately chew into their sandwiches. Are you going to bow your head and thank Jesus for your food? Are any of us here ashamed to walk down Regent Street with our Bible under our arm? Paul is challenging us here I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel and our shame. The gospel. Thirdly, and our salvation. He goes on with his argument. I am eager to preach the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here's his third stage in his reasoning. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This is why he's not ashamed. Because it's so great. So transforming. It's the power of God to salvation. And this is how I understand that phrase. As the gospel message is read or as the gospel message is shared in park or in pulpit or as the gospel message is preached. God's power comes on a sinner and enables them to believe and they are saved. The gospel, especially from verse 15, the gospel preached is the power of God to salvation. Just to be clear, in Newton Arts, the gospel is preached. We're reminded that we're all sinners and will be judged by a holy God, but that in his love he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died and is risen and in heaven And everyone who repents and believes in Jesus will have God's righteousness imputed to them. And as this message is proclaimed, God's power comes and enables a sinner to believe. Some will mock the message, some will reject the message. But one or two will experience the supernatural power from heaven. They'll believe. And in that moment of faith, almighty God saves them. And Paul longs for this. He longs to be in Rome standing outside the pantheon with its pagan and immoral worshippers and preaching this message. And suddenly the power of heaven comes. And sinners believe, and are saved. I'm eager, he says, to go to Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel because this is what it is. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Paul links his preaching with the power of God in, in other places, doesn't he? Writing to the Corinthians, my message was not in plausible words, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. To the Thessalonians, he writes another large city, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. As he proclaimed the gospel, the power of God came to bring faith and salvation. In our Bible class this morning, we never got to this detail about Richard Wurmbrand, but Richard Wurmbrand was imprisoned for his faith as a pastor. And he tapped out the gospel in Morse code to someone in a neighboring cell. And as he tapped out the gospel, the power of heaven came down. And that man believed the power of God to salvation. What salvation? Salvation from the past. You have been saved. Salvation from the present. You are being saved. One Corinthians one eighteen. Salvation for the future. Thirteen eleven. Salvation is nearer than when we believed. Salvation from salvation to the power of God to salvation. The gospel and our sharing. The gospel our shame, the gospel, and our salvation. Now, someone is sitting there going, what's this got to do with baptism? And that is a very good point. <coughs> it actually has a lot to do with baptism. Baptism is not salvation. Today we've learned from our passage that salvation comes to us by the sovereign and almighty power of God, enabling her to believe the gospel and be saved. So salvation and believing and gospel are connected, not salvation and baptism. Some churches argue that baptism and salvation and God's power are intertwined we believe that gospel and salvation and power go together. If the magic is to happen, it won't be in the baptism. It will be in the preaching of the gospel. So baptism does not affect salvation. But it's a sign of salvation. Abraham was given that sign of forgiveness after He had believed. So the sign was different, distinct from his repentance and his faith. So you ask, why do we baptize children? Well, God goes on in the Old Testament to tell Abraham to apply that covenant sign to his children. So it's because of God's command that we baptize today. But our desire is that the sign and the reality will be joined. Did you see the sign up the Scrabble Road there about a month ago? The sign was Road Closed. And as I out in my bike contemplated this sign, I could see car after car coming up the Scrabble Road. And so, as you would do, I did, I cycled down the road, and the road wasn't closed. The sign and the reality was not joined together. And then some members in Newton Arts, it's not yet joined together. but let it be in our life. And we pray in the life of Ellie and James this morning. Baptism is a public sign. Paul is speaking here of not being ashamed of the gospel. And we've thought about this, walking down the the road with your Bible, opening your lunch and giving thanks in the canteen, witnessing across the hedge to your neighbour. But what spurred Paul on was the magnitude of this gospel, what it was. And today, we rejoice in this sign of baptism, the water symbolizing forgiveness, the sprinkling symbolizing the reception of God's forgiveness. We praise him for this declaration of the gospel. In our reformed churches, we don't have stained windows, stained glass windows. In our reformed churches, we don't have images or, or statues. In our reformed churches, we have baptism, which is a visible, public declaration of God's forgiveness and His grace. And lastly, baptism shows your special. To the Jew first. What a statement that is. It can't just be that they preach the gospel first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then the ends of the earth. It's not just an historical, chronological assertion to the Jew first. There is rank here. There is level. There is degree. The Jew first. in baptism today, we're asserting that Ellie and James are special. They're not like children from non-Christian homes, but in God's ranking, they're privileged. Not just being surrounded by Christ-like examples in in Andrew and Catherine. Not just belonging now to to a church that loves them, cares for them, and prays for them. But because they have this special covenant promise, I will be a God to Andrew and to Catherine and to their children. Baptism shows you're special. The gospel and our sharing, the gospel and our shame. The gospel and our salvation. The gospel, God's power to salvation to everyone who believes. You should believe. You must believe. Believe now. (coughs) Baptism. It's not salvation. Baptism is a sign of God's saving work. Baptism declares to us that Ellie and James, in the sight and goodness of God, are privileged and special. We want to praise God at this point from Psalm 96, the B version of the Psalm. The tune is number 244. Psalm 96, the B version of the Psalm. Singing verses 1 to 4. The tune is number 244. A psalm which opens with praise to God for revealing his salvation. And it goes on, as you notice in verse 3, to summon families. God's way of dealing in our world. Families of peoples. To give praise to the Lord. We remain seated. 96b, 1-4. to Let us praise God.
1: Oh, sing a new song to the Lord. Lord.
0: This point then we come to vows for Andrew and for Catherine and the baptism eh, then eh, of Ellie and of James. And I would ask everyone in congregation to stand eh, at this point. <clears throat> okay. So there's eh, vows for Andrew and Catherine first and then I vow for the congregation after that. Andrew and Catherine, do you acknowledge your, your children as covenant children and, according to the gracious design of Christian baptism, do you dedicate them to God and present them for recognition as a member of the church? Do you promise to perform the following parental duties? To pray that your children may be renewed and brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as signified in this sacrament. To seek that your children may come to know the holy scriptures and to know the duty of committing themselves to God. To rule well your household, exercising parental authority with firmness and love, setting the example of a holy and consistent life and attending with regularity to personal, family, and public worship. To seek that your child, your children may, while young, come to understand the history, doctrine, and practice of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and may be helped to experience the blessings of loving obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Again. And Andrew and I and Catherine have been able to go through our membership class and have had many discussions, and it's great that they've been able to take these vows today. The following question then is for the congregation, and I ask you to indicate your assent by raising your right hand. The question is Do you promise to pray for these covenant children, Ellie and James, and to seek by example and precept to encourage them to walk in the ways of the Lord? Please show. Okay, that's, that's great. Thank you. So at this point, I, I'm going to uh, pray. And uh, during the prayer, uh, baptize Ellie and, and James. Okay, so let's uh, bow our heads in, in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for these special moments in the presence of your opened word and proclaimed word the presence of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, that we think together in this congregation of your blessings and of your grace and of your salvation in Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, for how you govern our lives and how you direct us and lead us by your word and by Christian friends and by the events within our life. Thank you for your care, your leading and guiding to us. Thank you that the Lord is our shepherd. And thank you that in your goodness you have led Andrew and Catherine and Ellie and James uh, to this congregation. Thank you for the fellowship that we've enjoyed with each other. Thank you, Lord God, for the moments that we've prayed together, for the service that we've rendered together as we've sought to serve you and serve your people. Thank you for their family, Lord. Thank you for the influence uh, that this has been upon them. Thank you for the prayers and the love and the care. Thank you for June, for her love and example and influence upon the family. And thank you, Lord, for the family into which Ellie and James have been born. Thank you for the love that surrounds them. Thank you for the encouragement in your ways that they receive. Thank you for the the interest of this congregation in, in, in every dimension of their life. Thank you, Lord God, that they are privileged and blessed. And thank you for the promise that's, that comes to them. That you will be a God to Andrew and to Catherine, but also to Ellie and to James. Father, we thank you for the sacrament of baptism. We thank you for this tangible, this visible sacrament which proclaims to us the washing, the forgiveness, the cleansing which you In your infinite mercy, grant to all who believe. We praise you for this, Lord. And we pray that in these moments, uh, that this outward sign of cleansing and renewal and grace will be accompanied by that inner cleansing in the heart of Ellie and of James. May they be people who know you, who love you, who follow you, despite the temptations and challenges of life and of school. And of community. We pray that you will keep them. And strengthen them. And bless them. Lord we we commit them to you. In these moments. And now. I baptize you. Ellie. Mary Ann. Mackenzie. Into the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. And now I baptize you. James, Robert Mackenzie, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his face upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and grant you his peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Andrew, in scripture, Andrew is not mentioned very often, but he was one of the closest disciples of Jesus Christ. And Andrew, I encourage you to live near to Jesus. When he is mentioned, he is bringing people to Jesus. And Andrew, I encourage you to open up the word of God and lead your family to learn more of Jesus Christ. Catherine, I haven't found a woman in the Bible by this name, but I found a biblical woman. Martin Luther's wife, Catherine von Bora. She was a tremendous influence within her home to her six children. A wonderful help and example to her husband. And I encourage you, Catherine, within your home to be a tremendous encourager in the ways of Christ for his glory. Ellie has Mary's name in her name. And Mary was a wonderful servant of Christ, humble, devoted, godly. And she said these words, Ellie, that you're to say as well, I rejoice in God my Saviour. And James, James has lots of, of occurrences in the Bible. There's many people called James, even in the Old Testament, the Hebrew is Jacob. He's in the Old Testament. He's in the New Testament. There's lots of mention of James. But one James was the brother of Jesus. And he starts off his book that he wrote in the New Testament by saying, words that you're to say as well, James, a servant of Jesus Christ. And for the congregation, what a great joy for us to welcome Andrew and Catherine into membership and their family, Ellie and James. Let us love them, pray for them, and show them an example of devoted obedience and service to Jesus Christ. Thank you. Jesus, door